a brand new series called How to Neighbor, and we are talking today um, about empowering the poor. Um, we've already talked a lot about some other stuff, so we're a little later in the service than I usually get into my message, so we're just going to dive right in to Luke chapter 10. If you got your Bible open to Luke chapter 10, there's a story there which is very famous that we're building this whole series around. It's a story uh, that we know is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, for many of us, this will be very, very uh, known, very familiar. Um, I encourage you, man, push past that familiarity. Come to this with fresh eyes today and let God speak to you on this idea of neighboring. Verse 30 says, in reply, Jesus said, Luke chapter 10, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. So a priest in, in that day and age was essentially a lot like a pastor, similar to, to the role that I fill. It was a, the religious leader in, in the Jewish culture, and obviously in the Jewish culture, that was a very significant position. That, that was somebody who was very revered and looked up to. So, so this person is going down the same road, and when he saw the man in need, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, and a Levite, the Levites were the, the tribe of the Israelites who were tasked with taking care of the temple, with the, the running and performing of the spiritual functions. So this would be somebody like a worship leader. So, so I passed by, I was too busy, and then Jimmy comes along, and Jimmy sees him and came to the place and saw him and says he passed by on the other side as well. So, so our spiritual leaders are failing. Uh, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and we, when he saw him, he took pity on him. What, what's so significant about this is the Samaritan was not only a different ethnicity than the Jews, uh, but, but he was a very specific different ethnicity. Samaritans were, were half Jewish. Uh, they, were, they were Jews who had breeded and, and, and paired off with, uh, with the Arabs in the area. And so they were half Jewish and half Arab, and the Jews hated them. They looked down on them. They thought, we are better than you. There, was, there were ethnic differences. There were racial differences. There were spiritual differences. So there was a divide here. And the Jews thought, you know what? We're, we're not going to talk to these people. We're not going to associate with these people. And so Jesus uses the highest people in the Jewish culture, the priest, the Levite. And he says they were too busy. They were too caught up in their own lives. They were too consumed and self-absorbed with what they had going on. But the Samaritan, the person you all hate, the person you think you're better than, he came along. And he showed pity on the man. Verse 34 says he went on, or he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Then he asked this question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? So the question that was asked uh, this man had come to Jesus, and he asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, number one. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so the guy trying, trying to be smart, trying to show how intelligent he is and, and kind of separate himself to, well, I don't have to do this for very many people. He says, well, what, who is my neighbor? And instead of answering with who is your neighbor, Jesus answered with a demonstration of neighboring. He flipped the script, and so this is his demonstration. He said, who, which one do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Everybody say, go and do likewise. If you're a Christian here today, if you follow Jesus, if you identify as someone who, who has received salvation, I believe this statement of Jesus 
is for you. He says, go and do likewise. So Jesus takes this concept of being a neighbor, and he says, quit focusing on, on how far your neighborhood stretches. Man, is that just the people to the end of the road, or is that everybody in my subdivision, or is that everybody in West Olive Branch, or, or South Olive Branch, or Nesbitt, or Memphis, or wherever I live? He says, don't worry about what's your neighborhood. I'm not so concerned about who lives around you, or where you live. I'm concerned about how you live. See, neighboring isn't about who lives near you. Neighboring is about how you respond to the needs that pop up in your world. And Jesus calls us to neighbor well. One of the things I love so much about this story of the Good Samaritan is that Jesus told some, chose somebody who was other, somebody who was different, somebody that they all felt like, well, that's not me. And he made him the hero of the story. What we're going to do throughout this series is we're going to take four groups that we may feel like are other. Four groups that we may feel like, man, that's not me. I'm not involved in that. Four groups that maybe we can separate ourselves from. And sometimes we may see, hey, we got more in common with that group than we think. But we're going to see that we are called to neighbor each of these groups. We're going to talk through how can we neighbor these different groups. Today we're talking about the poor, talking about poverty. I I believe that this is something that, that everybody in this room, there's something in you that responds when you see need. There's something in you that says, man, this isn't right. This isn't just when you see somebody who doesn't have a place to stay. When you see somebody who's hungry. When you see kids who go to bed without dinner. When you see people in in maybe another country who don't have clean water. There's something in us. Why? Because we're made in the image of God and God cares about the poor. God loves the poor. There's something in us that that gets bothered, but sometimes it's so overwhelming. Because there's so much need. Where do I even start. What I want to do today is maybe unpack some principles that will help us on where to start. Let me say this before we even get into it. So much of this is going to need to be spirit-led. So much of this is going to need to be, man, we're praying and we're open to the voice of God. God, who are you calling me to touch? Because all of us have limited resources, right? There's only so many people we can help. There's only so much time in the day, and, and those things are legitimate, but so often we just default to saying, yeah, I can't fix everything, so I don't fix anything. And God's calling all of us to be a part of making a difference. And, and so today, we're, we're not just going to talk about helping the poor. I, I think a lot of times that's kind of our goal is, man, we want to help, but I, I think God even has something further for us to go to. We're going to talk about empowering the uh, in other words, not just giving them something that's going to temporarily put a band-aid on a situation, but actually helping them to get out of their situation. Actually recognizing where they're at and recognizing God's got something better for you. And we're going to help you as, as much as God enables us to, to empower you beyond that. Uh, so we're talking about empowering the poor. And I know as we go into this, there's probably some people in this room who are saying, you know what, Pastor Troy, I'm struggling right now. Uh, I'm the poor myself. And, and if that's you... Um, I, I just want to encourage you many times, the, the time when God's going to use us the most is, is the time when we're looking at all the lack in our own life. And, and so I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay or diminish the, the situation that you're in, but I am saying you've still got something to offer. You've still got the ability to, to impact somebody else. And many times meeting my needs is going to come as I step out and meet somebody else's. And the, the Bible's so clear that we reap what we sow, and so I want to encourage you, even if you're in that place today that you're like, hey, I'm struggling, I'm the poor, I believe that God can speak to you 
through today's message as well. So, so today's message might be a little bit heavy. It, it might be a little challenging. Um, if anything is like first service, the chances are I may cry a little bit today. Shocker, I know, right? So before we get to the heavy stuff and the tears, I thought maybe we could start with some laughs and loosen things up before we get into this. So I went to Twitter, and, and, and I typed in in the search bar, I'm so broke. And, and I've got a few examples of some tweets that have gone out of people talking about how broke they are. Uh, so the first one says, I'm so broke, my baloney has no first name. Uh, you, you might have to be over 30 to get that one. I'm not sure. But uh, I'm so broke, my baloney has no first name. The second one says, I'm so poor, I can't even get a sugar daddy. All I can afford is a splendid daddy. Uh, that one got a better laugh at the second service. I like that. Uh, next one says, I'm so poor. This is my favorite one. I rub cologne for magazines on my shirt, and when they say, oh, you smell good, what is that? I say, page five. <laughs> Stealing that one. <laughs> Great idea. Uh, and this last one says, I'm so broke, I go to KFC to lick other people's fingers after they eat. See, there's broke, and there's nasty. You ain't got to be nasty just because you're broke. That's nasty. Uh, we're, we're not going to be that person. Uh, but, but the reality is we all have situations in life, seasons in life, where we may feel like we're broke. And we all have people in our backyards, people in our lives, people in our families, people in our circle who are struggling right now. And, and so many of you may say, I'm struggling right now. What do I do? Some of you have been to developing nations, and you've seen poverty on a different level. Nineteen of us just went to Los Angeles, and, and we saw some extreme poverty. Uh, especially by American standards, down on Skid Row and the, the things that the Dream Center is doing. And I'm going to share some principles today uh, that we learned at the Dream Center on, on how to empower the poor, things that, that we picked up from them, and so, some other things that are, God's placed on my heart and things that I've learned as well. Uh, but if you've been to a developing nation, man, poverty just goes to a different level. You may have seen something like a shack that, that's been constructed, just, just some people, pieces of metal that have been thrown together. Uh, and, and this room may be the size of your walk-in closet that seven, eight, nine people live in. And there's a bucket in the corner, and that's the toilet because uh, they have no running water. Uh, and, and you realize that, that poverty can go much, much deeper than even what we are exposed to in America. Or the flip side is, right, your 14-year-old your son may define I'm so broke that we can't even afford an iPhone, right? Like there, there's different levels of feeling broke, uh, but, but no matter what it is, Poverty is real, and it can be suffocating. And, and so we want to discover today how to empower the poor, how to embrace the poor, how to love them well in the middle of the situation. Um, but what's really interesting to me is Matthew chapter 25, Jesus very famously talks about what it will be like when he returns. He, we believe that Jesus is coming back one day, that he's not just died and rose again and ascended into heaven, but one day he's going to return for his people. And it says in Matthew 25 that one day we're going to stand before him, and he's going to separate everybody into two groups. He's going to separate his people over here, and in this story he calls them the sheep, and he's going to separate those who are not with him over here, and in this story he calls them the goats. And it says that, that he's going to tell his people, his sheep, he's going to say, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. When I had no clothes, you clothed me. He's going to go through these lists of needs, and he's going to say, you met my needs. And he says, his, his people, his sheep, us, if you're a Christian, we're going to respond and we're going to say, Jesus, when did this happen? When did we ever see you in need? When did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or naked or in prison? And in Matthew 25, 40, Jesus responds, and he says this. He says, whatever you did for one of the least 
of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I know many of you, if you're a Christian, you've heard this a million times. But I want us to push through that familiarity and feel that statement for just a minute. Imagine that one day you're going to sit across from your creator. You're going to sit across from the resurrected king that we just sang about. The one who, whose final breath upon the cross is now alive in me. The one who robbed the grave. You're going to sit across from him and he's going to say, the things that you did for the least of these, you did for me. The, the people that society looked on as unimportant. Uh, the, the people that society said, well, they're in this situation because of this fault of their own. And this thing that they did and all of this stuff that they got wrong. To say the things that you did for them are the things that you did for me. I'm counting it as for me. In fact, Proverbs 19.17 says, if you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord. Isn't that crazy? Imagine ever letting God borrow something. How could God ever need something? He says, I don't need anything. But if you help the poor, I'm going to count it like you did lend to me. I'm going to consider it like you did bless me, like you were doing it for me. 1 John 3, 17 and 18, just to, to drive this point home just a little further to show you that this thread runs throughout Scripture. It's not just one parable or one story. This happens again and again. God values the poor. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. See, the danger is we come into a series like this, to a message like this, and we hear it and we're emotionally moved today. Oh, man, I hate that people are in need. The danger is we go to a place like the L.A. Dream Center and, and we see this incredible need and, and God uses us for a week. And then we come back and we go back to regular life. Right? We walk out of here and you know what? We, we got to figure out something for lunch today. And me and my wife are going out for lunch today. So I get it. I'm in the same boat. We're going to do those things. But, but if all we do is talk about it and it doesn't inspire any change, it doesn't inspire any action, First John says the love of God is not in us. God forbid that that statement would be true about this church. God forbid that he could look down on City Church as these believers are gathered together, raising our hands and worshiping him and leaning in and taking notes to a message. And God forbid that he would look and say, you know what, they don't even really have my love. It's not really in them. We've got to let it affect us and inspire us to go out and do something with this. We can't just love with words and speech, but we must love with action and in truth. We can't just say, well, somebody should do something. Or one day when I have more time or more money or one day when my kids are grown, then I'm going to do something. We've got to respond. But how do we do it? I, I believe that you want to. I believe everybody in here cares and has a desire to be a part of this. You want to do something, but, but many times we don't know where to start. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to do it to get it right. Um, and so in order to get it right, there, there's something we have to do first. We have to have a proper understanding of what poverty really is. Uh, there's a book that, that's so great on this, has incredible principles. It's called When Helping Hurts by Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert. And, and they wrote this book uh, from a Christian perspective, but they looked at how, how often Christian charities and organizations and missions come in with good intentions, with good desires, and actually in the process of trying to help, they actually hurt. And it's a paradigm-shifting book at, at how to alleviate poverty without hurting the people who are being helped. And so this is what they said uh, in their book, and, and we'll give them full 
full recognition for it, but I think it's so good we've got to write it down. They said most Americans define poverty as a lack of something material. If we were to pass the microphone around the room today, before I said this, now we'd be cautious of it, but before I said this, that's probably what we would say, right? Like, what's poverty? Well, it's not having enough food to eat. It's not having a place to stay. It's, it's not having the, the things for your kids. It's not being able to give Christmas presents or, or whatever it is. We define it materially. said so most Americans view poverty through this lens, but, but World Bank actually went in and surveyed 60,000 poor people. So this is not a small sample. 60,000 poor people. That's bigger than the city of Olive Branch. 60,000 poor people, they surveyed them, and they asked them the question, what is poverty? And and, and the answer was very, very interesting to me. Here's what these 60,000 extremely poor people in developing nations said. They said, poverty is a deep sense of shame. I can't even take care of my kids. I can't even handle the, the responsibility that I've taken, this commitment that I've made to my family. I can't even do it. I'm so ashamed of where I'm at. They say it's an ongoing feeling of worthlessness. I'm just one poor person in the middle of this massive slum of other people who have nothing. We're insignificant. Nobody cares. Nobody values. We have no worth. I'm just breathing air. Repeatedly, again and again and again, these 60,000 poor people use the word fear to define poverty. It's an imposing, impending sense of fear. Some devastation is coming. One more bad thing is going to come our way. They're living in constant fear of what's next. They use the word humiliation. It's completely humiliated. And and ultimately, in the greatest definition that they could come up with, the, the thing that summed it up the most, is that poverty is hopelessness. It's hopelessness. It's, I, I don't have the education to get a better job to get my family out of this situation. I don't have the transportation to get to another place where they have more resources. I don't have anything to get where I need to be. I told you guys last week about a man named Ike that I met on Skid Row. Ike was a cool dude. In fact, we got to pray with him to receive salvation on Skid Row, and I believe that, that he was very sincere, and he meant this as he received Christ. But he told us, man, I can't even keep a Bible. But every time I get a Bible, it's in my bag, and I go to sleep on the streets, and somebody snatches my Bible. I was just so hope. How can I get closer to God? How can I become who God wants me to be if I can't even read the Bible? And he felt this deep sense of hopelessness. And that's ultimately what poverty is. It's a sense of being trapped in your situation. It's a mindset much more than it is a material lack. So, so when we say that we want to help those who are struggling, we don't just need to give them the help to get through the day. We need to help to, to begin to change the mindset. Here's the good news. Poverty is a sense of hopelessness. As Christians, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are agents and dealers in hope. The greatest thing that we have to offer. We may not always have all the money to fix all the problems. We may not always have a place to put everybody to stay. We may not always have all these physical solutions. But one thing we never, ever, ever run out of is hope. Jesus is hope. Jesus is hope of a better tomorrow. Jesus is hope of a greater life after this one. Jesus is hope that I have significance, that I have value to the one who created me. Jesus is hope that who I am today is not necessarily who I am tomorrow. Jesus is hope. And as Christians, as the church, as we encounter people who have poverty, we have always got to come in with a message of hope. We've always got to point them that, man, things can get better. Not, Not a 
uh, all sunshine and rainbow situation where everything's great. If you just believe, we, we need to recognize the reality of the situation, but also point to the hope of Jesus. Years ago, there was a church, just to illustrate how, how helping can hurt. There, there was a church who sent a missions team to a developing nation. And they planned this missions team for, for quite a while. And one of the things that they said is, hey, we want to help provide clothing. We know that they, they don't have much to wear. And so we're going to come in with clothes. And so they had recruited and, and rallied and done a drive. And they come in with hundreds of T-shirts. And so they go into this developing nation with all these T-shirts. And they're out on the street. And they're giving them away. And they're feeling really good about themselves and high-fiving. And kids are getting, you know, Denver Broncos shirts or whatever team shirts. And they're representing. And, and everybody feels great about it until about day three. And day three, they find out that in this village where they were at, there were three ladies who ran a business, and their business was making shirts. And it was the way that they took care of their families. It was the way that they provided for the people around them. And this church, well-meaning, good intention, trying to show people love, they came in and they completely undercut this business. They completely cost these people their source of survival. And so what we want to do, and man, there's story after story after story of, Americans doing stuff like this, man, that we can be so ignorant, and we want to help, but we don't always help well. So I believe that, that we can help well. In fact, I believe the Bible says we have the mind of Christ. Uh, so, so we have access to wisdom. James 1.5 says if we lack wisdom, we can ask him, and he gives it generously. So we have access to more than enough wisdom on, on how to help. So what I want to do today is I want to give some practical wisdom uh, that, that hopefully will help us to, to frame these conversations. But I also want to call you as God's servant, as a Christ follower, as somebody with the Holy Spirit inside you. we got to pray this stuff through. Before we just step up and, and try to step into a situation and think we've got all the answers, God, how, what would you have us to do here? How can we move in this situation? Because caring is so important, but it doesn't necessarily amount. We've got to combine our care with some wisdom. So, so first thing that we need to do is we've got to re- recognize the foundation of this. The root of all poverty is brokenness. All poverty is rooted in brokenness. There is something that is broken. And the truth is, all of us are broken in some kind of way. See, it's easy for us to separate ourselves and say, well, we're not in this situation. We're not in poverty. But, but all of us experience brokenness. All of us have some kind of issue. There's more than just physical uh, poverty, by the way. There's also relational poverty. There's spiritual poverty. There's different kinds of poverty. Next week, we're going to talk about relational poverty uh, and loving the lonely. Uh, but but there, there's different kinds of poverty, but the root of all of it is brokenness. Something is wrong. It starts with a broken relationship with God. Adam and Eve sinned, and when they sinned, they brought sin into the world, and, and so they became broken, and they passed that DNA on to us. So I'm born with broken DNA. I'm born in, in, in a fallen state. In fact, this Bible says that the whole creation groans for the day when God will step in and restore things to the way it's supposed to be. But right now, we're in a state of brokenness. And so poverty starts with this broken relationship with God. Then it moves on to a broken relationship with self. Our our identity, our self-esteem is broken. We don't see ourselves the way that God sees us. And so we see ourselves as hopeless. We see ourselves as worthless. That was one of the definitions from World Bank, right? Poverty is a sense of worthlessness. Well, that's not who God sees those people as. But, but there's a broken sense of self. There's a broken identity, and it causes, it's right at the root of this. And then there's broken relationships between people. You see, oftentimes, people who are in need are too ashamed to speak up about their need. I don't want anybody to know what's going on in my life. I don't want anybody to know I'm dealing with this problem, this addiction. I don't want anybody to know that I can't provide this for my kids. And so we don't speak up out of shame. 
and, and, and there's a brokenness in relationship. Or the flip side, maybe we have the solution. Maybe I've got the answer to the problem you have, but I'm so self-absorbed and so caught up in my own life and so caught up in my own stuff that I'm not even aware of the need around me. And so there's this brokenness in, in relationship with God, brokenness in the relationship to self, brokenness in relationship to others that's at the root of all of this. And that's why it's so empowering, so encouraging, so awesome that Jesus, as he comes to his hometown of Nazareth, he goes into the synagogue, which is essentially their church, and he opens a scroll of the book of Isaiah, and he reads this in Luke chapter 4. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim what? What's he anointed me to proclaim? Good news to who? Good news to the poor. Jesus is good news to the poor, by the way. Uh, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, So Jesus reads this, and he goes on, and he actually finishes the scroll, and then he says, Today, this is fulfilled in your presence. In other words, Isaiah wrote this 700 years ago, that someday there would be somebody who came to proclaim good news to the poor, to bring freedom to the captives, to comfort those who mourn. Someday this would happen, and Jesus says, I'm him. I'm the fulfillment of this. It's not just something that, it's not just an event, it's a person. I am good news to the poor. And then you know what he goes on to say? He tells his followers, you're going to do greater things than I, and I'm going to put my name on you. You're called Christians, which literally means little Christ. So Jesus has come to bring good news to the poor. So what does that mean the church has come to do? Bring good news to the poor. That's who we are. It's our identity. It's our makeup. It's part of our mission. So the root problem with poverty is brokenness, and Jesus comes to fix our brokenness, to bind up the brokenhearted. I believe that, that we're called to embrace this. I believe that as Christ followers, we're called to care about the poor. As City Church, we are called to embrace the poor. As the Big C Church, we are called to embrace and empower those in need. So how do we live it out? What, what do we do when there's a guy down the street asking for help? What do you do when you're in downtown Memphis and there's somebody who looks like he doesn't have a place to stay? What do you do when your friend loses his job? What do you do when the person that you're in a city group with finds out that they've got stage three cancer? What do we do? How do we help those who are in need? Well, well it starts with understanding our calling. So what I want to do today is, as we wrap up very quickly is I want to give you three things that we are called to do. Three things that as a Christ follower you and I are called to do. Three things I believe our church is called to do. Hopefully these will frame our, our relationships. They'll frame our encounters with those who are in need. Number one, we are called to serve others, not save others. We are called to serve others, not save others. Jesus is the one who saves. This is actually liberating, by the way, because it takes some pressure off. Your job is not to go in and, and be the savior. Your job is not to come in and be the hero, like this church we talked about, right? They came in with good intentions, but we wanted to be the hero. Our job is just to serve. Jesus is the one who saves. And so, so we've got to, to avoid that concept. And sometimes it can be insulting and dangerous to think that we're the answer. We're not the answer. We're the conduit to the answer. We're the expression of the answer. But he's the answer. Uh, so I'm just the servant. So how does Jesus want me to serve? Well, I want to give you two things, two lenses that we can be serving through that, that I think are very important for us. I, I've been wrestling with these concepts for a couple of weeks as we were in L.A., and I think for, for all of us, for a church, this will be some good language for us to begin to adopt. So, so the number one way that we're called to serve is we're called to serve through relief. Relief is immediate, temporary help during a crisis. Tornado wipes out a town. Hurricane hits the coast. Earthquake strikes somewhere in a village in the third world, whatever it might be. In, in our world, it might be somebody loses a job. 
immediate temporary help during a crisis. Um, if you don't know Mercedes Rogers, she's a good person to know because if you hit a crisis, she's a home run crisis person, man. She's the master of relief. If something's going down, if there is a major need, Mercedes has a gift for stepping up in the midst of crisis. It's something that's been so cool for, for me to witness. Um, so, so we are called to, to serve others through relief. Somebody's got an issue that, man, immediately we're going to step in. We're going to go in. We're going to be there in the midst of the relief. And, and I think oftentimes we're better at relief than we are the second thing. Then we're also called to what's called restoration. So relief is temporary, immediate help during a crisis. Restoration is long-term relationship to rebuild wholeness. So, so what happens is there, there's a crisis. There's a tornado, right? It comes in and wipes out a town. And, and man, or, okay, there's floods in Louisiana right now, right? We'll use that as an example. So there's flooding in Louisiana. It's all over the news. Red Cross is going to come in. Salvation Army is going to come in. There's going to be all this relief that pours in. It's going to be all over the news for about a week. And then we're going to get tired of Louisiana flooding. And we're going to move on to the next thing. Except the people in Louisiana aren't going to be able to move on to the next thing. Because their house is still ruined. Their job is still gone. Their life is still destroyed. Everything still needs to be rebuilt. And so as a church, we can't just be crisis people, although it's important to be there in crisis, absolutely. But as the church of Jesus Christ, we're called to help people rebuild. And that means coming alongside them for the long term. That, that means being involved in people's lives, even when the emotion of the devastation is gone. Even when the shock and the horror of, oh my gosh, I can't believe that that happened. Man, that, that emotion leaves, right? You get to a point where we're used to it. Oh yeah, that happened. You talk about Hurricane Katrina today, it doesn't have the same impact that it had on us 11 years ago when it happened. Some of those people's lives still haven't been rebuilt. Some of those people are still devastated through what happened. And so the, the church has to come alongside and help people rebuild uh, their, their wholeness, rebuild their home, rebuild their community, restore their God-designed wholeness. The Good Samaritan example is so good in this because I think he did both. He, he came in and offered immediate relief, right? It says that he bandaged the man's wounds. He, he brought out some medicine, and he began to treat his wounds. He took care of him in the immediate, but then he helped him rebuild his life. He said, I'm taking you to a bread, bed and breakfast. I'm going to pay for you to be here as long as you need to be, and then I'm going to come back to town and check in on you, and if you need more money, if you need more, I'm, I can't be here personally to do it, but I'm going to make sure that you get out of this place, that you get back on your feet, that you get back to work where you can take care of yourself. I'm going to help you rebuild your life. And Jesus says, go and do same. So we've got to spawn, respond with relief and with restoration. So number one, we are called to, to serve people, not to save people. Number two, we're called to relate with people, not rescue people. Relate with people, not rescue people. We've got to get to know people. We've got to care about them. Those people who are struggling are not just projects to help. They are people to love. And if we view people as projects, it's really easy to move on to the next project. But when we see them as people, when they see them as image bearers of God, when they see them as people who, who God loves, who Jesus died for, that's when we step in and actually walk through the process of rebuilding. And so we've got to see them as more than just projects. They've got to be people to help. Uh, I've got a few friends from Oklahoma who attend this amazing church called Life Church, Oklahoma City. Uh, and actually, it's, it's probably the biggest church in America. They don't take attendance because their pastors are afraid of of being prideful about it, and he's like, I'm not, I don't even want to know. But they've got 25 campuses, and uh, it's just a, an incredible, incredible place. And so I've got some friends there, and the story that I actually heard their pastor, Craig O'Shell, tell one time uh, is pretty amazing. He said that they had uh, a, a small group, 
in a small group, decided, hey, we want to make a difference. So they had a neighborhood right around the corner, an apartment complex that was pretty run down. It was in pretty bad shape. They said, you know what, we're going to go in and we're going to bless this apartment complex. We're going to help these people. So they started raising money. They raised thousands of dollars through this small group. I'm like, man, that's awesome. We raised $5,000 for a missionary at our church, and I thought that was great. They're doing this in a small group. We, we, we got some room to grow. Uh, but they raised thousands of dollars. They go in, and, and they said, you know what, we're going to make this place beautiful. We're going to plant flowers. We're going to do landscaping throughout the whole complex. We're going to come in and, and build this incredible playground for the kids. We're going to bless them the way that we would want to be blessed. And so they did it, and they showed up, and, you know, they all had the matching T-shirts, and we've all done this, right, the Mission OV shirts, whatever, and, and it's awesome. And they go in, and, and they put this stuff together over a weekend, and they love on these people through the weekend, and they do the block party, and they have this awesome event, and they feel really good, and they leave, and three years later, the place is deteriorating. It's right back where it was. And he said, here's the mistake that we made. He said, we didn't go in and ask anybody what they needed. We didn't build any relationships. We just said, hey, let's do something to make a difference. Oh, this would be a cool thing we can do. We went in and did our thing, and then we left. But because there was no relationship, we didn't know what they really needed. He said if we would have really sat down and talked to people, maybe we would have found out, you know what, this is a single mom. And she says, I just need some transportation where I can get a job to take care of my kids. Or maybe we would have found out that, that there are a lot of people here who just don't have an education. And we could set up a GED program. And they could begin to have some self-worth and some dignity. And that would expose them to, to some job opportunities that they don't have right now. Or we, and he went through a whole list of things that maybe we would have found out, but we didn't find any of that out. He said, and maybe, just maybe, he said, probably not. But maybe they would have said, man, we just need our place to be beautiful. We just need a great playground. We just need some flowers. And he said, if they said that, then our job would have been to say, how can we help you make that happen? to incorporate them into the project, to get them out there helping us building the equipment and, and raking this place and pulling the weeds and making it happen. He said, because then we give them dignity, we give them self-worth, and then they've got something to be proud of that they're going to take with them. But he said, we didn't do that. We came in to be the hero. We set the thing up. In the, in the long run, we didn't make any difference at all. So we don't want to be that. We want to make sure that the, the things we invest, man, when we spend God's money, that's a serious thing. Right? Like, it's not our money anyway. It's God's money. When we invest God's money, man, we want to make sure that it's making a difference. When we invest the time of God's people, we want to make sure that it makes the best impact, that we get the best possible return. So we need to see that we're called to relate with people, not to rescue people. When we were at the Dream Center, uh, we went out on a food truck one afternoon. The food truck would go out, and we'd pack up food, and we'd hand it out to all these people. And this, uh, this was actually in an apartment complex. And we met this dude named Clarence. And Clarence was awesome. Clarence was full of the joy of the Lord. Clarence was from the neighborhood. You could tell just by the way he dressed that, that, you know what, Clarence didn't have a lot. Clarence was somebody who probably had the food truck show up at his house once and decided, you know what, I want to be a part of it. I want to be part of making a difference. I want to be a part of helping. And it was so cool to see the, the dignity and self-worth that he had. Clarence actually had had his home and his wife's home burned down just a couple weeks before this. And I'm like, dude, why are you here? We need to be helping you. And he's like, no, I want to make a difference. God's put something in me. See, this is somebody who they built relationship with, who they didn't just treat as a project, but they got to know him. They pointed him to Jesus. He got full of the love of God. And he says, even in the midst of what my family lacks, there's somebody else who has less, and I'm going to make a difference for them. That's the impact, that really praying this stuff through, thinking this stuff through, and making sure that, that we treat them as people, that we build relationships, is going to help us do. Uh, when you help decide that, that you'll never do for somebody what they can do for themselves. That was the mistake that, that Life Church made in going in, is they did for them what they could do for themselves. we got to come alongside people. We can help them do what they can do for themselves, but we need to give people the dignity that, hey, we're here to help you 
do this. So those struggling are not projects to help their people to love. Number three, we are called. This one's so huge. If you didn't hear anything else I said today, stick with me for this. I know we're going a little long, but, but hear this out. We're called to reach out, not reach down. We're called to reach out, not to reach down. Re- reaching out is because I care, because I recognize the dignity and the value in you. Reaching down is, hey, I'm better than you, and I'm going to pull you up to where I am. Uh, when we have this mindset, we avoid using us and them language barriers, right? It's not, here, we're coming in to do this for them. It's, man, we're going to come in and do this together. Brene Brown said this. She said, we divided the world into those who need help and those who offer help. The truth is, we are both. I'm going to say that again. We divided the world into those who need help and those who offer help. But the truth is, we're both, aren't we? We all need help sometimes. Man, I've learned this. Doing ministry, man, being the 662 as the youth pastor here for so many years. I could tell you story after story of young person who, who, who we stepped into their life. Maybe they had some, some, some rough stuff going on in their family. Maybe they had a dad who was absent, whatever it was. We stepped in. We helped them through a rough situation. And down through the years, that, that kid has helped me ten times more than I ever helped him. And that young person has done so much more to, to give back to me. Some of them have watched our kids. Some of them have, you know, served in our kids' ministry, praying over my kid. Probably right, there's almost guarantee there's a former 662 student praying over one of my kids right now. I can almost guarantee you that. That's an amazing thing when you realize that I didn't just get to help them. They're helping me. Man, we're doing this together. I need, I need brokenness in my life. I got stuff that I need. We all do. And so we're not reaching down. We're reaching out. We're recognizing that, hey, I've got something to offer in your situation. At the Dream Center, they, they told us this multiple times before we went down to Skid Row, which is where all these homeless people are. They said that these we are not going in to minister to homeless people. We are going in to minister to people who are experiencing homelessness. In other words, we're not reducing their identity to, oh, they're homeless. They're a person. They're created in the image of God, and in the midst of that personhood, right now they're in a rough spot. And they're experiencing homelessness. But that's not their identity. They're not just poor people. They're not just people who have drug addiction. They're not just people who we reduce to whatever this thing is. People who live in the projects or the trailer park or the rough part of town. They're people who are experiencing something. And we're coming in to offer relief. We're coming in to work towards restoration. I thought that was so so valuable. There was a, a guy who let us out the first time we went to Skid Row. His name was Steven, and he's from Canada, and our girls thought he was gorgeous. Uh, but but Steven uh, said this, and I, I thought this was such an incredible story. He said, don't go into Skid Row thinking that you've got something to teach them. Go in knowing that these people have something to teach you. Uh, he, he said one of the first times that he went down there, he went down, and he saw somebody laying on the side of the road, and he said, what's your name? And the guy was like, no, try again. And, and he told this whole story about this guy kind of messing with him. But the ultimate point was, don't come in and ask for somebody's name. Come in and offer yours. Show that humility. Hey, man, what's going on? My name's Steven. How you doing? And in offering yourself, you're putting yourself on their level. You're not coming in better than them, looking down on them. What's your name? You're coming in and, you know what? I'm just here to show some love of Jesus today. I'm here to give and, and, and to receive and to learn. And he said, in doing this, man, I've learned so much from the people. So much from these homeless people. They've got stuff to teach me, just like I have some things that I can share with them. And so we've got to recognize that we're called to reach out, not to reach down. And I could go so much more in depth, but I know I'm already out of time, so we'll cut off there. But, but remember this, guys, these three things. We're called to serve others, not to save others. We're called to relate with people, not to rescue people. We're called to reach out, not to reach down. And as we do that, as we pray this through, 
I believe God's going to help us to identify what are the needs that we're called to meet and what are the needs that, that are somebody else's responsibility right now. What are the needs that, that God's got something else in the works. We can't fix everything, but we can help with something. Amen? Let's pray.